every SaaS company has their magic moment, that moment where the user says, oh, wow, like this is why I need this tool. And so we've been always trying to get that time to magic moment shorter and shorter and shorter, because the faster you see that, the higher likelihood you are to retain, the higher likelihood you are to become a frequent user. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. We are going to have another fascinating discussion today and getting into stories around SaaS companies, how they grow and scale. I'm pleased to have Ken Babcock on this episode. He's a CEO and co-founder at Tango. In a minute or so, we will learn about the company, the background, and how he has started the company you know, the problems that they're solving. So let's start with uh, a little bit about yourself, Ken. Sure. Thanks for having me, Arman. So, you know, like like you mentioned, co-founder, CEO of Tango, one of actually three co-founders. So myself and my co-founders, Brian and Dan, we met at Harvard Business School in the fall of 2019. So that was our first year there. We had been introduced through mutual friends, hit it off, and actually sort of realized we had this shared sort of entrepreneurial ambition. You know, that's why we were at school. Dan, in his early in his career, was was an investor, you know, a venture capital investor. Brian had had founded companies, you know, even before coming to school. And then I think I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug from my experience at Uber. So was at Uber from 2014 to 2018, periods of crazy scale, periods of a lot of, you know, correction, also, you know, based on some of the the well-documented things about Uber's culture, but it really was a place where the best ideas would win, whether it was, you know, solutions to challenges we were facing or ideas to take, you know, to take advantage of an opportunity we might have. And in that spirit, even though it was a big company, it was something that, you know, I, I kind of kept with me. And so Brian, Dan and I, you know, started working through ideas at school and one that we started thinking about, this is actually Brian's phrasing, was Twitch for work. You know, this idea that, you know, what if you could watch the very best people do what they do and, and understand their process and how they get things done? You know, if you're familiar with Twitch, it's sort of that video live streaming platform. But we got good advice early on, actually, from Mark Pincus, who's the, who's the founder of Zynga and, you know, which, which created Farmville. You know, so he's a, you know, he's a video game guy. He's an entertainment guy. And he said, that sounds so boring. Who's going to watch, you know, endless hours of people's process at work? And, you know, we were a little discouraged, but, you know, he did say, hey, there's something there, you know, you should still run with it. And so 
you know, what we kind of thought about was, okay, well, how can we actually take what we're trying to do and distill it down to something a little bit more simple? And so what Tango is today, it's a seamless way to create step-by-step documentation. So we're a browser extension, a desktop app. It actually creates documentation of your process as you're doing it. So instead of watching somebody and gathering their knowledge, you're actually able to share your knowledge really quickly. And the more we dug into this, the more we realized that, you know, teams are, are comprised of high performers, maybe people are struggling, new hires, and getting what's in high performers' heads out and, and you know, down on paper, you know, metaphorical paper, but is really hard. There's a high barrier to it because creating documentation isn't easy. Maintaining it is painful. And then, you know, what tends to be annoying is when it's out of date and people within your company are reaching out to you. And so, you know, we felt, how can we lower that barrier? And so we feel like we've done that with Tango and, you know, it's really resonated with our users. We've, we launched the product only a, less than a year ago, 10 months ago. We have over 125,000 users. We've been able to grow the team to, to a team of 30. We've raised, you know, two financing rounds now coming sort of fresh off of our series A. So it has been a really fun ride. So I'm excited to share more. Based on some previous discussions, I know that one of the topics that, you know, we talked about and you mentioned was process in SaaS companies that goes side by side by documentation. I jokingly tell people sometimes that, you know, the very first wine in the mankind history found goes back to six, 7,000 years ago. But the first time that somebody documented the process and could repeat the process was 3,000 years ago. That takes 4,000 years for humankind from the time we do it until we document it. And then we can repeat the process in a very consistent way. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what is from your perspective that makes a company more scalable, a SaaS company especially, by just, you know, paying a little bit of attention to make it more, you know, well-defined process and putting the process in place. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I love sort of the prehistoric anecdote. We need to weave that into our uh, our sales pitches a little bit more. But this is this is kind of where I, I got exposed to this at Uber, you know, firsthand. I mean, Uber actually did have a great culture of documentation and process. In fact, the first team that I was on there was a team that was focused on driving efficiency in our launch operations. So we were launching cities constantly. And the whole idea with our team was, you know, every city that we've launched is kind of a data point to understand what works, what doesn't work, what tactics should we use? Does it apply to specific types of markets? Is it unique to this market? How can we validate it with data and experimentation? And so without really knowing it at the time, I was getting this like best in class education around process documentation and scaling process because we eventually scaled to, you know, 600 markets and it was all based on this playbook that was circulated. And so I think from that, you know, my big takeaways were that, you know, process in order to be followed needs to be written down, like you said. I mean, that's kind of the obvious one, but it also needs to be acknowledged that, you know, processes change and, you know, your process that works for your business is going to evolve and change based on, you know, how your business changes, how you start serving your customers. And so that 
is another component of, of, you know, Tango where, you know, if you write something down once, but it's too hard to maintain it and update it, you're not actually taking advantage of that evolution that you're going to see. But if it's just second nature to create documentation, when something changes, you've just got a new step-by-step tutorial for that. And so, you know, the way I like to think about it is when the organization itself, like Uber was, is armed with all the information and resources at their disposal, that increases, you know, the, the efficiency of the organization, it increases the velocity of what you're able to do, and it opens up sort of time for creativity on top of that. It actually opens up the space for that evolution to happen. And so, you know, when we would launch a market, it was like, hey, here are the 20 things you have to do. That became very easy for teams to execute on because it was documented, but then they could they could innovate on top of that. And then that became part of the process too. And so, you know, I'm making a few, uh, you know, degrees of separation, but I think that that's what that unlocks for organizations is once you have that process, you're able to iterate and, and get better. How do you think that would play in our special time that is pandemic and enforced some of these remote working and other kind of culture that it was just, you know, one day we came to work a little bit over two years ago, and then we learned that tomorrow morning or next week we have to work in a different way. Office is shut down. Nobody comes to office anymore. And then perhaps, you know, some of these topics that you just mentioned might have played a positive role in a company that has done right on those fronts. And it might have worked against some other companies that maybe they had a different kind of culture. How do you, how would you kind of put these points that you just mentioned, the process, the documentation, everything else within that kind of context in very special time we have been through and still is not yet ended. And I don't think it will go away anytime soon. So that will stay with us forever like remote working, for example. Yeah. And, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because we started the company during this special time, right? So, so we have, we've experienced it firsthand. So, you know, we can empathize with, with what our customers are going through. I think there's a few components, you know, the most, the most upfront one is that, you know, people are remote, they're distributed, even if they're in the same city, they're distributed because they're working from home. And, you know, obviously you're seeing a lot of companies continue to embrace that, uh, even as we start to emerge out of the last two years. And then, you know, the great resignation also plays a part in this too. You have a lot of people leaving companies and out the door with them goes that knowledge, that institutional knowledge that they have. And so I just think it places more of an importance on documentation and communication. We've had to do that internally where... Yes, we have our, our core company values and our mission, but we also have communication norms. You know, here is how we communicate. Here is how we document so that people have the information that they need because, you know, you don't have that water cooler. You can't pass by somebody's desk. You can't look over someone's shoulder as easily. And with a lot of our customers, the, the turnover that they're experiencing within their organization means that you know, they, they just don't have as much of a handle on their knowledge. And so it places more of an importance. And, and, and I think, you know, kind of what you were describing around 
the competitive elements of it, the companies that are going to emerge successfully from this are the ones that are going to be able to capture those processes and make sure that their knowledge is accessible by, you know, anyone on the team today and anyone joining the team in the future. We are in the age of, of course, you know, transforming more and more into digital world, right? So every business, it's not just, you know, of course, we are in software business. Of course, we have always lived in that kind of digital world probably for a while. But even if you think about non-software businesses, they are getting more and more into digital world. They realize, and that was accelerated again by pandemic, and they realize that if they move toward, you know, being more digital, they can actually do the business much faster, better, easier. It will be less impacted. It will grow faster. So how do you feel about, for example, some of these, you know, SaaS companies and the impact that they have in this kind of new world, transforming companies to digital age more than ever and helping those companies coming to really take these points, meaning that we need now to define not just process internally for ourselves as a SaaS company, but even help the companies that we help them to transform also for them to really have a more well-defined process, how to do that and how to really transform to digital world. And maybe as a SaaS company, we can also help them, not just help internally our own processes, but also their processes. It's it's a it's a slightly different take. It's more like, you know, on the other aspect, also we are talking about our clients as a SaaS company versus internally. Do you see that also a kind of trend or something that SaaS companies can do in order to, to accelerate, to facilitate that kind of movement? It's a really good question. We've thought about this one a lot because, you know, with the adoption of SaaS, it's an opportunity, but it's also a challenge. You know, I think the opportunity is that, you know, more and more companies are adopting SaaS tools, right? I mean, everyone listening here is developing a SaaS tool. They see an opportunity for it. And companies are adopting it. In fact, Okta released, you know, their, you know, they do this every year, but, you know, they, they, they talk about how many apps company or companies are using. I think, on, you know, the average company is about 90 applications, larger, more mature organizations. It's over 200. So these solutions are, are things that people are seeking. And so there's an opportunity for all of us to, you know, be that solution. But there's also a challenge because with with this increased adoption of tools, I mean, there's still the same attention span within organizations. It's not saying that, okay, well, now we have all these tools. Now we're going to dedicate all of our time to figuring out the tools. And so I, I think I think what we're seeing, you know, from a challenging side is companies have less tolerance. If they, if they can't figure out a tool or the value that it's going to provide, you know, they'll cast that aside. And so kind of turning that into what, what can we do as leaders of SaaS companies? It's accelerate that time to magic moment. We actually, this is a key metric for us. It's the number of minutes from account creation to your first piece of documentation. We call them workflows. Every SaaS company has their magic moment, that moment where the user says, oh, wow, like this is why I need this tool. And so we've been always trying to get that get that time to magic moment shorter and shorter and shorter, because we know that the faster you see that, the higher likelihood you are to retain, the higher likelihood you are to become a frequent user. 
that piece around attention span is, is really the challenge that, that we all need to address. And how do you see the difference between B2C and B2B kind of SaaS companies and products with that regard? Is there a major kind of difference with regard to the way you look at B2C apps and you look at B2B apps? Or maybe you guys are more focused on B2C. My assumption is you work with both categories. Yeah, this is where you know our strategy has always been being product-led, bottoms up. So the end user is the one who adopts Tango. They feel the pain point most acutely. They're looking to get back their time. So the value proposition is very clear. And so that product-led motion actually sort of forces you to be a little bit more like a B2C company, you know, because you're working with that individual user. They're signing up. There's not this maybe like connective tissue within their team. Some instances there is, you know, but someone shared a tango with them and that's why they signed up. But you have to kind of always assume, you know, this is a kind of a single player mode, at least for the beginning. And so we've tried to emulate a lot of B2C best practices, but live within, you know, within the organization. And so, you know, the big difference for us tends to be once we have the adoption within a team, you know, someone signs up, they share tangos, more people sign up pretty soon. You've got an entire team on it. You know, then the value proposition to those, those buyers more the B2B motion is, Hey, you've got your whole team using tango. They're all saving time. Wouldn't you want to bring this in house and, and consolidate the billing and, and provide this, you know, this tool, this resource for your, for your teams and maybe even beyond the people that are using it. So our motion is a little bit different, but we see how B2C companies, consumer apps influence a lot of our, a lot of our product development. So if I understand correctly, you say when it comes to intuitiveness and ease of use, the gold standard is B2C. Now, even if you are working with B2B, that's the gold standard, because if you can be really like a B2C product company, then you can definitely be very, you know, have a very high standard when it comes to making your software easy to use, well to understand, very intuitive, because that's the toughest between these two. B2C is the toughest, and you have to really go with that standard to be successful or increase your chance of success on either way. Yeah, that's totally that's totally it. I mean, we've added certain things in the product that, you know, from a user experience standpoint, make it feel more familiar, make it feel like a, a consumer application that you're using. That's all very intentional because that familiarity allows people to, you know, use it more quickly and take advantage of a lot of the functionality. Whereas, you know, I think in the past with, with B2B and, you know, specifically enterprise software, it's always been about function. It hasn't necessarily been about form or design or experience. It's always been, what is the utility that this is giving me and what, what requirements does it fulfill with product led growth? It's, it's kind of gets flipped on its head. You mentioned that, you know, you have the experience of Uber during the course of the time that it was moving and growing fast. And then of course, you know, being that, you know, fast growing company and earlier stage, there are more rooms for making mistakes and 
tons of other things that, you know, we are familiar with, you know, pros and cons of those kind of, you know, moving fast. Now, the speed that how fast you're moving, you're growing, uh, especially at the earliest stage, that is still the culture is not cultivated enough. It's not, it's like a tree, but doesn't have enough roots. And any wind is coming can take it out. It's not like a, you know, uh, aged tree, or at least has had some time to have enough roots that wind is coming and growing and everything, and still, you know, it's there and it can help stability. What's your take on that? Sometimes you see companies moving too fast. Maybe you would advise, hey, maybe it's time to slow down a little bit. It's much better for the company. Of course, there are some obligations, I would say, that you know, sometimes investors are behind it. They want a faster return on investment. They drive actually and they encourage faster you know, growth and this kind of things that might be counterproductive in the long run to uh, benefit the company product people. So what's your take on that based on the experience that you have had? It's a really good question. And I think what this reminds me of is, you know, when I was at Uber from, let's call it 2014 to 2016, that period, the first half of the time that I was there, every single week was a record week. We would go into all hands meetings and it would kind of be this comical thing where, you know, our COO, Ryan Graves would get up there and he'd go, all right, another record week. And, you know, everyone would, would, you know, it's sort of like a, it was a weird rallying cry, but <laughs> what can happen with that and it happened a little bit at Uber is, you know, it almost reinforces everything that you're doing. I'm sorry. When you say record week, it's about bringing new people and new hires, or it's about the new passengers and trips or revenue. What was it would basically just be green up and to the right across the board. It would be trips, bookings, new riders, new drivers. I mean, new cities, everything was just, a best <laughs> personal best. And the, the trap that you can fall in there is thinking, Oh, okay. You know, we're setting a record every week. Everything we're doing is great. You know, it's almost this like reinforcement bias just based on the, the outcomes. It definitely happened at Uber on certain areas. I think in the areas that were able to maintain that pace and maintain the success, what you saw was almost like a culture of experimentation. It wasn't just like, oh, everything we're doing that that works. We're getting, you know, the, the high level business goals are being hit. It was actually, okay, before we do anything, let's set up the right experimentation measures to actually make sure that this is going to be successful or actually make sure that this is what's driving it. And we're not actually succeeding in spite of ourselves. <laughs> so, and, and a lot of times that's, that was what was happening. We were succeeding in spite of ourselves because Uber had one of the greatest product market fit stories of all time. And so a lot of things we were doing weren't, wasn't actually what we should have been doing. But so for me, when I think about going fast and specific to your question, it does become about how do we experiment? How do we actually determine attribution for what we're doing and, and what it's driving and not just make sure that we're successful in, in spite of ourselves. The piece about roots that you were mentioning, I think that is about being a mission-driven organization, making sure that you have 
core values and not just core values that are written down, but core values that weave their way in and out of, you know, your, your company, your process, your weekly cadence, your performance reviews, your interviews, your all hands, and those values are front and center. You're recognizing people routinely for living out those values because that's the piece that you may not have time on your side. You know, you may be two years old like we are, <laughs> but you've got, you're grounded in some other kind of way. Um, and I think that's, that is the, it's going to sound funny. That's the value that values provide is that, you know, they do ground you and okay, what are we really trying to do and how do we operate? This is something that uh, you may tell me that you have experienced directly or indirectly. And I don't know because I haven't discussed it with you, but I'd like to pose this question anyway, ask for your, for your opinion, if you don't mind. I see this kind of VC industry that I have experienced with them. And, and for most part, it has been a positive experience on my side. But at the same time, like everything else, it comes with pluses, minuses, and you need to know where to use it and when to use it and how to use it in order to maximize the benefits out of it, right? And then when you when you look at the VC industry as whole, it's more like something that is designed in a way that it helps, especially us in technology industry, we benefit from that part most. And then this... VC industry comes in with money that collects from, you know, from their own investors and they bring it to companies, but there's a timetable to it. So they need to return the money normally within 10 years. That's the definition of the fund. Normally, typically that's the case, of course, not 100%, but for most part, that's the model, right? So, so there are some people putting that fund, the fund is distributed amongst software SaaS companies. And the idea is this fund is going to return to people who have put the money within 10 years. And that dictates a timetable that essentially if you are the third year in the fund or second year or fourth year, then you have the time remaining of the fund. And it's not like if it's end of the 10th year, there is no way to extend it, but it still is preferred to really do it within that time frame that, you know, so it, it puts some time timetable. So sometimes you may come up with this situation that we have two options. This is great for the next two, three years of the business. And I can maximize the return in three years, but this is really a better approach if you are thinking longer term. So also this is better for the next three years. This may at some degree jeopardize some of our long-term kind of goals and the benefit that we can bring to the team and people and society and customers and product in general. And then you are in that kind of timetable. And then, you know, from investors point of view, with that model of investment that has a timetable, if you are within that time frame, this is your series BC at something and series A guys are there and they look at the timetable and they have only three years to kind of get out and they may want to, you know, just uh, go with a different timetable that may not be the best for your customers. And the... so how would you see that? That sometimes it's more, again, time talking about the timetable that is in front of you and the way you have experienced it or you think about it. Would you go with the long term and insist as a CEO that I want to really look at the longer term? Or you would say, I understand sometimes we have to really go with the short-term goals 
even if it's not the best optimized for long term. And you know, if there is something here that you know from from what you have seen around you, you can say, yeah, these are the pros cons the experience I have. Sure. So we've we've raised almost you know twenty million in venture funding. So uh, I guess I'm a fan, <laughs> but I think the point you're bringing up is one that is important for founders to translate the the economics of venture capital and why this timetable matters. You know, like you said, there's the fund dynamic. You need to return the fund. They have LPs that they report to. I think the other thing is is also knowing that their economic model only requires that a few of them really hit it out of the park. And so they really want you to swing big. And, you know, it's it oftentimes three to five companies will return the fund. It's not going to be every investment that's that's made. Part of that is just the high stakes nature of starting a company, right? A lot of companies fail, but you have to push those companies to swing big. And swinging big does mean you you tend to have maybe more of a shorter term focus, maybe that piece around speed that we talked about, you know, going fast is is what's most important. But if you have the right partner, they'll help they'll understand those trade-offs. And, you know, yes, you want to you're going to weigh that, you know, what do we do now versus what should we do to like set up the foundation? You know, but the right venture partner isn't always going to look at the short-term side of things. And so that's what we've tried to optimize for in our fundraising. It's a luxury for sure to be able to do that. I mean, I think a lot of founders are, are, are going to be overjoyed with, with a term sheet and they should be. But if you have the ability to, to really select for that partner, you won't find yourself in such a binary situation where it's, oh, we either do this or we do that. It's like, no, we can do a little bit of both and let's let's think about it. But the piece around speed and the timetable, it, you know, this is sort of a unique nuance to venture-backed companies. You have to sort of treat building your company as if you're on this sort of learning exploration. You, the reason you move fast is to get more and more data points about around what is going to work long-term, you know, sitting back and staying in development, not interfacing with customers, hoping you're building the perfect thing. That's just, that's, that's not getting you data. I mean, we always talk about better data faster. And the idea there is that you're getting feedback, you're getting input, you're operating kind of in that timetable, but you're operating in a way that gets you closer to what the solution needs to be. You know, thinking that you have the product intuition of what needs to be built is, is a huge fallacy. And so if you can orient your company and say, you know what, we are going to take a big swing. We are going to move fast, but it's all in service of learning what we have to build. Then you're kind of doing both. You know, you're, you're moving quickly. You're, you're, you have short-term sites, but you also are building for the long term. So I know that's not a super clean answer, but there's a lot of nuance and factors involved in that one. Sure, sure. I know that SASTU is coming this September. Uh, you guys probably have a booth there, I guess. Uh, do you want to tell us about that and any anything else that if, if there is any particular part of publication that you guys are doing or 
the places that people can go and learn about your company? Yeah, for I mean, first and foremost, tango.us is our is our site. There you can learn more about the product, use cases, customers, the team, a lot of our content that we're putting out as well. That's a great start. But yeah, Saster uh, will be there uh, as a sponsor in September. So September 13th through the 15th uh, in San Mateo. So, you know, would love if anyone who's listening to the podcast uh, wants to swing by the booth, say hi, learn more about Tango. You know, we'll be doing the same. So if, if you're there too, we'll... Well, we can trade. We can trade learnings, but we're we're super excited for that. I think it's a it's going to be a good opportunity for us just to get the word out, learn a lot from other 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 founders, other teams. At this point, it's only about two months away. Fantastic! And I would like to ask you if you could share with us a couple of books, one, two, whatever, some books that have impacted what you do positively, and you would like to recommend those the audience i love books around leadership i think it's a really complicated subject matter it's extremely personal you know finding your own leadership style and what works finding one that's authentic to who you are um, and not just trying to copy paste and try to be elon musk or try, try to be other business leaders and so the one book that I really liked about leadership, mainly because I think his philosophy aligns a lot with my own, is um, The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, CEO of, of Disney. He really embraces you know, what he calls servant leadership, this idea that you're put in a position of leadership to, to basically lift up others. And that's how success of a leader should be measured. There's a lot of really great anecdotes about running Disney and some some deals that he made that that really benefited the company. Um, but he also gets really tactical, how to deliver hard feedback, how to fire somebody, uh, which, you know, I think we'll all probably encounter at some point. It's a really quick read and it's a good one. Another book that I actually read recently is called Burn Rate by Andy Dunn. I think it's on the bestseller list, but Andy Dunn, co-founder of Bonobos, really detailed you know, yes, his founding of Bonobos, but also his grappling with with different mental health issues while he was the CEO. And I think it's such a relevant topic that doesn't get talked about candidly enough. And he does a great job of talking about it candidly. You know, there's kind of the phrase, oh, you know, it's, it's lonely at the top. And, and I think that's so true. And, you know, what he dealt with was maybe a was bipolar syndrome. And so it doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but he talked a lot about how the emotions, the ups and downs of running a company really impacted him and impacted his life. And so reading that was a really helpful reminder that in order to be your, the best version of you as a CEO or as a leader at your company, you have to take inventory of the things that are affecting you and how they're affecting you and find outlets and people that will be able to support you. Uh, so that was another good read. Um, pretty sobering, but like, you know, a good reminder. Great. Thanks very much. It was a great discussion. I appreciate you joining the show and hope to reconnect and having you on the show again in the future. Thanks, Armand. It was great. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. 
For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.